Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Yeah, I know it's... Hi, Sarah. It's hard to stay awake after, uh, after lunch. And uh, I'm ready for my uh, siesta as well, so... We'll try to make this quick, but I doubt it. So uh, these um, past few weeks, I've been teaching and preaching through um, the book of Romans. And uh, we started with Romans chapter, what was it? Did I start with six? Yeah, I think it was chapter six, right? And now we are on chapter 10. Um, I want to uh, review a little bit in terms of Romans, because oftentimes what, what can happen is that we can uh, become kind of very myopic in terms of how we look at a passage of Scripture. We can isolate a passage of Scripture and look at it in depth and then, um, and then kind of lose the forest for the tree. And uh, so it's important for us to understand the overall message of, of what the Apostle Paul is teaching. So in chapter 1, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, the Apostle Paul focuses on the universality of sin. The power of sin um, affects every person in this world, everyone, every human being that has ever been born since Adam and Eve is, has been born with a sin nature, and we are corrupted by that sin nature. And the argument that the Apostle Paul will make is that it makes no difference whether you're a Gentile or whether you're a pagan or whether you are a Jew, every one of us is affected by sin. There is no difference for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. Chapters 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul will make the uh, argument that the only solution for sin is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that comes by uh, through Christ as a gift of God um, through faith in Christ alone. And so chapters 4 and 5 talk about the relationship. How do sinners who are so caught up in their sinful ways, they don't acknowledge God, they don't believe in God, they don't even uh, care for the things of God, they won't even acknowledge that there is a God out there. How do these people find peace with God? And so that's chapter 4 and 5. Jews as well as Gentiles... Because sin is a universal corrupting power that influences every person out there, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter how pagan your background is, and no matter how religious your background is, you're still corrupted by sin. The way to peace with God is through Jesus Christ. And so in chapters 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul makes the argument that peace comes through Christ, and he makes the, uh, the argument from the case of Abraham, and from David, Abraham and David. Why? There's, uh, they're very important uh, figures in Jewish history. The reason that the Apostle Paul uses uh, these figures is because Abraham was the father of all the Jews. But even more importantly, he's trying to make the, clay, the case that Abraham is not just the father of the Jews, but Abraham is the father of all who believe in God through faith. Abraham is the father of all. And so, through Abraham, God gave to him the covenant of faith. 
And through David, God gave to him the covenant of the Messiah, the king, the Messiah king who would reign forever. And uh, the reason for establishing uh, the doctrine of uh, peace, reconciliation through, um, through Jesus Christ is that both Abraham was justified by faith, both David was justified by faith, Jews are justified by faith, Gentiles are justified by faith. So, so far, he's been making a very strong and logical case for salvation only by grace through faith. Only by grace through faith. And if that's the case, then hey, I'm sorry, is this too loud? I don't want to bust any eardrums. If it's a grace, a gift of God, and if it's all grace, then hey, what's the big deal? I was a sinner before I was saved, correct? I'm still a sinner now that I'm saved, correct? Can't I just continue to live a life of sin and disobedience and disbelief and still receive the grace of God? And Paul's argument is by no means, literally to translate that in the most literal sense is no way, not even possible for a Christian to think like that, a believer to think like that. Why? Because of our position in Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Just as Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, so we were dead and buried with Christ. But more than that, just as Jesus was raised to a new life, so we were raised to a new life with him. So the act of baptism, when a believer is baptized and is immersed into the water, our sinful dead lives go down into the water, and when the believer comes up again, he arises into a new life, a new life just like Jesus rose again into a new life. Therefore, God saves sinners, gives them new life in order to equip them, prepare them, empower them to live a new lifestyle. That's chapters 6 and 7. That's the doctrine of sanctification. Justification, reconciliation, sanctification all by God, a gift by faith in Christ. Chapter 8, he addresses the doctrine of glorification. Glorification, uh, how then, when, and how can we become perfect? Perfect in the sense of no more struggles in this life with sin. Will there ever be a time in my life as a Christian, when I don't have to face the, the burning struggle, the fire of temptation in my life, well, that will happen when we are glorified. When are we glorified? We are glorified when we are raised in heaven with Christ. That's glorification. Now he's going to backtrack a little bit. Chapters 9 and 10, and uh, chapter 11, we'll talk about election. Election. Election, I talked about uh, last time, um, there are varying uh, views of election, whether you believe in general election, that's the Arminianist perspective. Arminianists are those who believe in the personal free will of man, that mankind chooses to be saved. And then there's, um, there's uh, uh, um, 
particular election or uh, what we Calvinists call unlimited uh, or unconditional election, sorry, unconditional election. Unconditional election means that it is solely the act of God to choose those who will be saved. So, um, and I made the case last week, I believe. Uh, I don't know how well that I did, but if you have uh, difficulty with what I said or, or uh, understanding um, the way that I taught it, please come to me and, and by all means ask questions. My phone, by the way, finally works. I've been without a phone for a month, uh, over a month now, but it finally works. You can text me, you can call me, you can whatever, okay? So I would love to have, and I, I love having conversations about these theological matters. So if, if uh, my way of teaching was not clear, then please, by all means, let me know, and, um, and we'll talk, okay? So uh, unconditional election. Today in chapter 10, Today, in chapter 10, we're going to talk about another doctrine. Feels like you're kind of sitting in a seminary class, doesn't it? And today's uh, doctrine is called uh, calling. The calling. And what I want to emphasize here is election and calling are both related. Election comes from the doctrine of predestination. Doctrine of predestination means that God has chosen beforehand our destiny. Beforehand, he has marked out our destiny. Now, don't get that mixed up or confused with, uh, with uh, determinism. Since everything is determined for us, then there's nothing that we can do. We are powerless. We have no free will. And... Uh, we're powerless. Everything that happens is basically just karma. No, that's not biblical. Nor is it biblical to say, uh, to talk about double predestinarianism, or um, double predestinarianism is basically uh, that God chooses or elects in two ways. God chooses those who will be saved, and God chooses those he will condemn to judgment and hell. The truth is, because we are all sinners, everyone is destined for hell already. Out of all those who are destined for hell, God chooses those who will receive um, salvation. And if you uh, want more uh, study, meditation on that, John chapter 3, verses 16 to, uh, to 18, 19 are good passages to look at, but there are plenty of other passages in Scripture I don't, um, that's called the double predestinarianism is the school of theology that we call hyper-Calvinism. I don't agree with hyper-Calvinism, but I do agree with Calvinism. So based on God's predestination, based on God's unconditional election of those who will be saved or who, whom he has chosen, then God's call on those who will receive the message of salvation, okay? Now, let me, let me clarify that. When I say who, will, who are called to receive the message of salvation, that does not mean that there are people who are excluded from hearing the message of salvation. 
when I talk about receiving the message, what I'm saying is those who will, in kind by faith, respond accordingly to the message of salvation. And that's what uh, the doctrine of calling is going to address. So Romans chapter 10, verses, um, verses 1 through 21. And this is a little bit long, but please bear with me. The Apostle Paul has been talking about Israel's unbelief in chapter 9. And what happens is that because Israel refused to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the Messiah who came to save and who is the only Savior of the world, if Israel, the Israelites, choose to reject that, then what happens? Has God thrown the Israelites away? Somehow is God done with the nation of Israel and says, oh, I give up on these people. They're just too stubborn. I can't do anything with them. Is that how we are to look at this gift of salvation? Um, he's going to say no. He's going to make a case that the same message of salvation that was powerful and effective in saving the Gentiles is the same message of salvation by which the Israelites will be saved. Okay, so uh, chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness... They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, the solution is Christ alone. The Apostle Paul magnifies, exalts Christ at all points in his life, in all points in the gospel. It's always about Christ. It's always about Christ. And so what he wants to do is, even though the Israelites are stubborn, even though the Israelites have denied Jesus Christ, he wants to point them back to Christ. He wants to break down these stubborn walls, the hardness of their hearts, by the grace of God. And so, what does he do? He eagerly, he earnestly gets down on his knees before God to pray for the Israelites. My heart's desire is that these people would come to know, to, would come to the salvation of Jesus Christ. How often, I wonder as Christians, when you think about the kinds of people who are in your life, family members, co-workers, friends who are unbelievers, you know, and they may argue with you, and they may mock you, and they may make light of the fact that you are a Christian and that you choose to go to church instead of working and making money and providing for your family on Sunday. But you choose to worship Jesus and you get mocked by, by, by people. God's desire is for the salvation of these people. I wonder if our hearts are in the same place that God's heart is. That sense of desire, this, this word desire is just such a strong word. Now, there's no way for me to uh, do justice to what this means. For the Apostle Paul to have a strong, such a strong desire, a passion in his heart to see his countrymen 
the people of his own race come to salvation in Christ. And why is that? Why is that? Because he knows that the gospel makes it so clear that without Jesus, men are lost. Men are lost to judgment, lost to sin, lost to hell, lost to the condemnation, the righteous judgment of God. But in Christ, there is hope, there is peace, there is salvation. And so he prays for them. That's his heart. That's his prayer, that they may be saved. Um, verses 5 through 13. God's call, or the call of God, is for everyone. The call of God is for everyone. Or is it? Um, verses 5 through 13, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down or who will ascend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. For what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, now this is where uh, things get a little bit difficult. There are two types or two views as far as calling is concerned. As far as calling is concerned. The one view of calling, and I think that this is um, in evangelical circles these days, this is probably like... Um, the most the popular view. I've never been one to ascribe to the popular view, but the popular view is what we would call the general calling. The general calling. In other words, in, in, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're preaching the gospel, the idea is that you preach the gospel or God is, is, is using people to preach the gospel to everyone. And God doesn't quite really know who's going to be saved. All he knows is that he has, has created the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, and it's up to the preacher to preach that plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and lay it out there for everyone. And some people are going to go, hmm, you know what? Yeah, that's right. And they'll figure it out. And they'll say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. And the God will go, wow, all right, he did it. He figured it out. That's the general calling. That, again, is the view of Armenianism. Armenianism uh, teaches and preaches that it is the will of man, primarily, that 
saves them. But what I believe is different. And what I believe that this passage teaches is efficacious calling. Efficacious calling. Efficacious calling means this. And what I mean by this, God has chosen, he's already predestined, he has unconditionally elected those who will be saved. Those who are predestined are foreordained by God, means that God has already chosen beforehand those who will receive the gospel. And so when the gospel call goes out into the world to everyone, those who are chosen by God will respond in faith to the gospel. That's efficacious grace or efficacious calling. And so in efficacious calling, what we're saying is this. The preaching of the gospel doesn't just, when God accomplished the gospel, he didn't just make it possible for people to be saved. By the preaching of the gospel, God is actually saving people. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he wasn't just dying for the sake of making it possible for people to come to faith. He was actually saving people. And that's what we mean by efficacious calling. God's foreordained, predestined plan is to save those who would receive by faith. It is not... See, it's a... The problem with Armenianism and Calvinism is that we believe that Armenianists have flipped everything around. If you believe in Armenianism, the gospel goes out and, the, and God doesn't know who's going to be saved. You know, there, there is a view in Armenianism called the prescient view of election. The prescient view of election means that, that God, because he knows all things, he looked from eternity past, he looked into the future, said, hmm, I don't know when Jay was saved, but, you know, God looked into the future and said, oh, we'll say 2005, you know. He looked at 2005 into the future and said, on 2005, Jay will receive Jesus Christ. Before, therefore, because I know that Jay is going to make the right choice, I'm going to choose him. The problem with that view is what? Our salvation is dependent on our choice still. That's the prescient view. The problem with the prescient view is there's no way you can find justification for that in the Bible. You can't. But here in this passage, when we look at this passage, it says God's will is for everyone to be saved. God's will is for everyone to be saved. You, you see that, uh, right, in this text? Right? Um, for verse 13 for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved the problem is that not everyone will be saved so if God wills for everyone to be saved and yet everyone is not saved where's the problem so is God not powerful enough that he can't save those people that he wills to save no the problem is not that they don't have a chance to hear. The problem is not that 
the problem is not that, that they, they, they can't hear. The problem is that every person, every human being, all the choices, the choices that govern our lives and the power to make our choices that govern our lives are ruled by sin. And we saw that, right? Sin as a dominating force in chapter 6. Jesus Christ has broken that dominating power of sin so that we are no longer ruled by its power. So, effective calling. Effective calling, um, Wayne Grudem, Dr. Wayne Grudem again defines it this way. Effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Okay. Effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Now, um, we have to talk a little bit about what salvation is not. Salvation is not easy believism. Have you guys heard that expression before, easy believism? Easy believism is so often the case in many evangelical circles and among many uh, Christians, people who call themselves Christians, evangelicals. In easy believism, people know these doctrines. They may hear the gospel and they may make the, the choice and they may have knowledge about God, they may have knowledge about the Bible, but there is no true repentance on their part. There is no response of faith on their part. And for so many people, their salvation is based on the fact that they have simply prayed the prayer. You know what I'm talking about? Pastor preaches the gospel and says, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then come to the altar. Come to the altar to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so people, oh, Jesus, forgive me. I love you. I love you. And they come to the altar and they bow and they cry and they pray the prayer. And it may be a very emotional prayer. And it may be a very, uh, uh, you know, from that, it m might even be very passionate but the thing is, when you look at the way that that person lives, and when you look at the fruit of faith that person has produced in their lives, the knowledge that they have of Jesus Christ has produced no results. So therefore, they continue to live an unbelieving life. Their lifestyle has not changed. There is no conviction of sin. There is no devotion or commitment to the Word of God. There is no commitment Devotion to the things of God, for example, the church, for example, uh, preaching, sharing of the gospel, for example, the testimony of grace in their lives, these kinds of things that testify uh, to the uh, wor inward working of the Holy Spirit. But most importantly, what's lacking is that repentance is displayed in a person's life by the change of the inward character, love, joy, peace patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness. 
and without these changes, what does that say about a life of repentance? That's easy beliefism. So easy to go to church week after week after week, year after year, go to Sunday school, go to youth group, go to college group, right? The problem is all the knowledge that you gain through all these years, there is no change. There's no commitment. There's never the commitment of internalizing the word, internalizing the relationship that comes through faith in Christ. So faith is just something that's out there. You know, and church becomes something where you just hang out with people who kind of believe the same things that you do. But there's no change. Now, faith without knowledge and without understanding of Jesus, how does this call of God, how is it evidenced? What is it that God calls us out to? Five things. Well, five things and then five, six things more. So the fifth thing is six points. But first is this. God calls us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. God calls us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And what does that mean? Out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Well, personally, there's a personal uh, uh, aspect of that, and then there's an external aspect of that, an internal aspect and an external aspect. The internal aspect is our hearts are in complete and utter darkness without Christ in our lives, without God in our lives. You may think you're a good person, you may think you're a moral person, but if you do not truly have saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are living in darkness. God has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. What does that mean? To inherit the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus shines the light of the gospel in our lives and he becomes the light that radiates, emanates from us into the world around us. And that's the second aspect is the externalizing of that. We then, because we have the light of Christ in our lives, then we become a light to an unbelieving world. We live in a world, the Bible calls this world a darkened place. The world is in darkness. We are the light that is set up on a hill. This is light that's going to give light to the world. You and I are the light that God shines in the world. Jesus Christ shining in my heart is Jesus Christ shining through me into the world around me. Okay, so he has called us out of his darkness, out of the darkness into his marvel light, and that's marvelous light. And that's first Peter chapter two, verse nine. Uh, second thing that God calls us to is God calls us to fellowship in his son. God calls us to fellowship in his son. And here I have to I have to correct what I believe is a misconstrued understanding of fellowship. In the church today, we often evangelical churches. And I don't know, I, I don't think it's just Korean churches, but because I've been so exposed to Korean churches, you know, we tend to use that word fellowship, what? How do we use that most commonly? I'm sorry? Go out and eat. 
with other brothers and sisters, right? Hey, let's have fellowship. Let's go to uh, Korean barbecue or something and have fellowship. Fellowship is so much more. In the book of Acts, we're told that all the believers came together and they had all things in common. And that's the idea of fellowship, is having all things in common. The word koinonia is the, is the, the commonality of faith. And what they shared, what the early church shared was they shared the word, right? Oftentimes what we see is that every time the word fellowship is used, almost every time, we see the word of God being communicated um, among brothers and sisters. And what that means is when you get together with a fellow brother, it's not just, hey, man, what kind of food do you want to eat? Oh, well, let's try this or let's try that. Oh, okay, you know, oh, that was good food. Oh, I ate so much. I just picked out on this stuff. Hey, see you next week. Okay, bye. That's not fellowship. The fellowship that we're talking about is, hey, Andrew, you know what? I was just reading in Romans chapter 10, dude. God spoke to me about these things in my life. And he spoke to me about the inadequacy of faith, my own faith. And, and, and I just want to share with you about the conviction that I had. And, you know, I feel, I feel like I just need help deepening my, my faith. Can you help me out? And Andrew goes, oh, wow, thank you so much. Man, that just spoke into my heart, too, because, you know, I didn't even realize it until you told me and you shared with me. Let's pray together. That's genuine fellowship. That's biblical fellowship. That's not Korean fellowship. That's not evangelical Christian fellowship. Label evangelical Christian, okay? And I'm talking about the cultural label here, not the true meaning of evangelical. But I'm talking about the true biblical fellowship is people gathered um, around the word of God, encouraging one another, edifying one another, feeding one another, strengthening one another with the word, through the word. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God calls us into this fellowship, not just fellowship with one another, but fellowship into his son. That's God the son. That is God the son. You know, it's not, it's not just like, hey, I'm, I'm just meeting some Joe Schmo off the street and saying, hey, how you doing? Hey, my name is Bill. You know, hey, you want to uh, sit here and chat a while? Sure, okay. This is Jesus the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is the eternal God, Jesus. Before the earth was founded, Jesus spoke his word, and Jesus was the word. And Jesus created the world and the universe into existence. And this is Jesus who was born into a, in, by, by, uh, through the Virgin Mary, by the Holy Spirit, laid in that little manger and grew up as a baby. This is Jesus who performed miracles, cast demons out. This is Jesus who gave life to the dead. And this is Jesus who calls us to fellowship with him every day, daily. But you know, it's like, as Christians, so often, you know, do we take the time to have fellowship with Christ? What are the things that govern our times well, I don't have time for the word. I don't have time for God. I don't have time to pray today. I got to work. I got to be at school. I've got finals. I've got homework. I've got projects. 
you know, I got to get my car worked on. Who's got time for this Jesus stuff? But God calls us to fellowship. You know, this is a terrible, I mean, for the past month or so, over a month now, I've, I've been living without a, 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 a phone, and it's just like, it, it was driving me batty, just not having that, you know, little computer in my hand, scrolling through stuff, you know, and so on. But I got to tell you, to be really honest, I realized that, you know, when I had less time to do this, I had so much more time to just reflect and meditate and pray. And I'll be honest that one of the things that God convicted me of is, hey, you know what? Fellowship with me is not your priority. Yeah. It's not just important. It's not important just to focus on the conviction, but you got to realize that there's there's got to be a desire. The change has to come from the heart. Change has to come not just by saying, "Well, you know, by you know, my my will is going to change, and 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 I'm going to make more time for this and that." No, it has to be the desire for Christ in our lives. Okay. Um, third thing. God calls us into his own kingdom and his glory. God calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Now, why is this important? Because the contrast to this idea of belonging or being called into God's kingdom is this. We are building for us our own kingdom. No matter what you believe about yourself, the reason that you study so hard in college, the reason that you work so hard to get that job the work is to, so that you can buy that house and buy, drive those cars and have the wife and the children and all of this stuff is because we're working so hard to build our own kingdom. And I love that Casting Crown song about, about um, you know, the kingdom or, or the castle that's built on sand right, versus I'll, I'll just take a shack on a rock over the castle in the sand anytime, right? The kingdom of God is that solid rock that will never perish away. But we're called to live in that kingdom. Another thing is that we are called by God to belong to Jesus Christ, to belong to Jesus Christ. And I, th I feel like there's no way to labor this point enough, but I've already addressed this on many, many occasions. So, And then finally, or um, not finally, but another point is um, we are called to be saints. We are called to be saints. Romans 1.7 and 1 Corinthians 1.2. We are called to be saints. What does that mean? You know, there are many uh, different notions of what it means to be a saint. If you're Eastern Orthodox or if you're, if you're Western Orthodox or if you're Roman Catholic, you know, uh, be, being a saint has very specific parameters. But according to the biblical definition of being a saint, the biblical definition is a saint is a, one who is called to be holy or one who is made holy. What makes us holy? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. 
being a saved means we have saving faith in Jesus. The blood of Jesus has been applied to us. And positionally, we have been sanctified, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And positionally speaking, God now sees us as holy. God considers all people, all believers who have true saving faith to be his saints. Now, here's the thing. If you're a saint, what do you have to do? Live like a saint, right? Be holy. Why? Be holy because I am holy, the word says, right? So we are all called to be saints. Part of being the saint is as a church, we need to understand that our church identity comes from the holiness of Jesus Christ, that Jesus makes the church holy. It's so much more, so much more than a bunch of people getting together and sharing good times. It's not just about being together with nice people, with good people. It's about having the kingdom mentality that Jesus has established his kingdom in my heart, in your heart, and we are holy by the blood of Jesus. That holiness that comes from the blood of Jesus is what defines our very life and existence. And then, um, final point, fifth point, we have come into, or we have, because we have been called by God, we have come into the realm of peace, the realm of freedom, the realm of hope, the realm of holiness, patient endurance of suffering, and eternal life, these six things. That's what the calling of God accomplishes in our lives. So let's look at this. Verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then verse 13 again, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, confession. The word confession is a Greek word, homologeo. It means acknowledgement and avowal with the implication of a change of conviction or of course or conduct on the part of the subject. So the biblical idea of confession is not just saying, okay, I'm going to speak out with my mouth. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, therefore I believe. It is not simply just admitting with our mouths, but so much more than that. To confess Jesus Christ means that there's a consistency between what we say and how we live. And that comes from the conviction, conviction of God's work in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing is, without the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no change in our lifestyle. Because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have the power of God in us to move and to make our lifestyle consistent with our convictions in our faith, in our beliefs. So if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Belief. Belief. Uh, one of the dic dictionaries that I looked at, uh, I found this interesting. 
The history of the English word is rather interesting than uh, is rather interesting than important. Use and context alike for it and its Hebrew and Greek parallels are the surest guides to meaning, he says. But we may note that it occurs in the form of faith um, in Havelock the Dane, and that would be uh, during the Dark Ages, that it is akin to fides, and this again, fides is the uh, Latin word, and this again to the Sanskrit root bide, to unite or to bind. It is worthwhile to recall that this primeval suggestion of the spiritual work of faith as that which on man's side unites him to God for salvation. I found this interesting because I had not known this, uh, this idea of this, the meaning or the root of the meaning, etymology of the meaning of faith. The English etymology goes back to this notion of binding, of uniting. It's more than just me saying with my own mouth, Jesus is Lord. This confession of faith unites me in my relationship with God. But more than that, this confession of faith unites, binds all of us as a church to Jesus Christ, to one another, to a body. As one body, we are united into Christ. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Question. How, faith, how important is faith in your life? Are we confessing him on a daily basis? Hebrews 11:6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. They had such a living faith, it says of the church in Thessalonica, they had such a living faith that their faith was contagious. Their faith was contagious. Would God say that about Bridge Chapel? Would he say that about the fact that we, because we're here in the city of Covina, that people in the city of Covina go, wow, look at those people. Look at their faith. Look at their Jesus. I want that faith. I want that Jesus. Faith is contagious. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Their faith was being broadcast everywhere. Not only was it contagious, not only was it drawing unbelievers to themselves and drawing unbelievers to Christ, but more than that, their faith was being broadcast to the world, to everywhere. Outside of that little city of Thessalonica, that community of faith was going out and reaching others outside of their own community. And here's a challenge for you. James chapter 2, verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I go to church, that's all that matters. And so you sit in, your, in, in, in the pew, you sing the songs, you hear the message, and you go home. But have you dared to open your mouth to share that message of faith to people around you? 
How is that message of faith producing works that honors Christ, that makes Christ known to the people around us? This works is not what saves us, but this work is the result of faith. It says here, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, it's important for us to understand. Um, the mouth here is not just simply our physical mouth as an organ of our bodies. Mouth is, is, is uh, in the sense of how it's used in the, in the New Testament, oftentimes it means a declaration, a speech or declaration. So the, uh, the point of this passage is declaration of Christ as our Savior. We're declaring Christ. To be a Christian and to keep our mouth shut and never to share about Christ outside of our own little small body here, but going out into the world, that's a problem. Because it is with our mouths that we declare Christ in the world. Look at Matthew chapter uh, 15, if you want. Matthew chapter 15, I'm going to uh, read from verses 10 through 11 and um, 18 to 20. He says, And he called the people to him and said, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. And he's talking about food. What kind of food should I eat? What kind of food should I not eat? What is clean food? What is unclean food, right? Jesus being challenged about the legality of food that his disciples were eating. And his answer is this. It's not what goes into a person's mouth that makes him unclean. This uh, word unclean is another way of saying sinful, right? It's not what you eat that makes you sinful. It's not food that's a bad thing. But what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person what comes out of our mouths? The declaration of what's in our hearts. Right? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, corrupts a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. It doesn't matter. You want to wash your hands or you don't want to wash your hands before you eat? doesn't matter. Right? You want to eat vegetables? You want to eat meat? doesn't matter. What matters? What comes out of your mouth? What are you declaring that comes from your heart? The heart. The heart. The heart represents the man himself. Okay? It is considered to be the seat of the emotions and the passions and the appetites. Embraced and embrace likewise the intellectual and the moral faculties. Though these are necessarily ascribed to the soul as well, this distinction is not always observed. So soul and heart um, often are synonymous in the New Testament, okay? The heart represents the very essence of who we are. It's where our emotions come from. It's where our passions 
and the appetites of our hearts come from. And that's why Jesus says, what is coming out of our hearts? That's what defiles us. But we're not people who speak out words of defilement, correct? We are sanctified by Jesus Christ. And as those who have been sanctified by Christ, what is the purpose of our hearts? He goes on to finish up the chapter. I'm going to try to finish this quickly. In the next section, we saw the call of God for everyone through the gospel, the call of God to the gospel, to the believers. And then uh, the call of God is the mission of the church. The call of God is the mission of the church, verses 14 and following. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel call of God is a gospel call to missions. Notice that in verses 15 to, uh, 14 to 15, he calls them to be his missionaries. So God calls the missionaries. Not only does God call people to be missionaries, but God calls people through the missionaries. So they're called to speak the gospel. They're called to preach the gospel. Oftentimes, when we talk about speaking the gospel, you hear the phrase, friendship evangelism. That's a very popular phrase that kind of came about in the 70s uh, and then became very popular in the 80s and kind of has been lingering for a while. Well, you know, people emphasize the aspect of friendship evangelism. So friendship evangelism, you know, go out and play basketball with people and, and, you know, you just be nice. And, you know, when you play basketball, you know, don't bump with the elbows and don't, you know, commit fouls intentionally. And, and you know, people go, oh, wow, hey, dude, you know, I like playing with you. You know, I don't like playing with those guys because when they, go, they I play with them, they all, they're always cheating. But you, you're a good player, man. What makes you so good? Well, I'm glad you finally asked. It's Jesus. Jesus makes me a good basketball player. And of course, that's a great avenue to be able to share the gospel with someone, right? Correct? The problem is this. The word, the Bible focuses on the word that is preached. It's not just about creating friendship evangelism, just about being nice people and, 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 you know, just being good people and somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit will just say, hey, you need to start asking about this guy's faith as if we're some sort of secret agent Christians. No. When I meet somebody who's an unbeliever, I make it very clear. I just say, hey, you know what? Um, I would love to spend time with you. But, you know, um, I believe in Jesus, and it's okay if you, do, you choose not to believe in Jesus, it's okay, but you know what? My hope and my prayer is that, is that if you have questions, I can, God will use me, and God will enable me to share the gospel with you, and I hope and pray that God will change your heart, and you will receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
make that very clear at the very onset. You know, say, well, uh, if that's what you want, then we can't be friends because I don't want to talk about Jesus. Okay. You know, or he might say, well, uh, that's fine with me. You have a right to believe what you want to believe, and I have a right to believe what I want to believe, what I believe, but, you know, we can be friends. We can discuss these things. We can disagree, but we can be friends. Now, there's more to evangelism than just friendship evangelism. Notice that God sends the preachers. God sends the preachers. How can they hear unless they are sent? But even more than that, how beautiful, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who preach the good news. Good news is another way of saying the gospel, right? The gospel, archaic term for the modern way, good news. Why people don't believe, verses 16 and 17. Why don't they believe then? And how, I'm sorry, verses 16 and 17. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? For faith comes from the hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not all heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous to those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Notice he's talking to the Jews there, right? And here in uh, verse 18, he's talked about his missionaries, or in the old days, the prophets who have gone out to preach the gospel. They were the missionaries of God. Verse 11, um, they refused to believe. And then verse 20, he talks about the Gentiles. He says, for then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The Jews would not believe. They were too stubborn. So what does God do? God allows them to remain in their sinful, disobedient unbelief, and he goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles get to enjoy the presence of God in their lives. So why don't people believe? People don't believe because simply because of their sinful, stubborn hearts. Sinful, stubborn hearts. Nobody can say, well, God didn't choose me. Nobody can say, God didn't give me grace. Just the fact that we're exposed to the gospel shows the grace of God. Just the fact that we wake up in the morning and have air to breathe says that we have grace from God. Uh, that's general grace, not special grace. It's not saving grace. But every grace that God gives us points to his goodness. And the greatest grace that God gives us is the grace of salvation, grace of faith in Jesus Christ. The question is this. Are we as believers in this world willing, are we willing to acknowledge God for who he is? Are we willing to hear the call of God? Don't be, just, don't be like the stubborn Israelites who didn't believe. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you get a call on your phone and you see who it's from. 
Ah, oh, it's my wife again calling me to tell me to come home. Eh, deny. When God calls, there is no deny. When God calls, the only proper response is faith, repentance, believing in him, that he alone can save us. Part of that means we acknowledge our sinfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, it is so easy. In our lives, Lord, we just uh, find it so easy to ignore your voice, to ignore your spirit, to ignore your call. Father, I believe that as your word has made your call so clear to us, Lord God, I pray that our hearts would respond to you with faith. That we would believe that you are calling us to yourself, drawing a people for yourself. May we not be like the nation of Israel that stubbornly rejected the Messiah and to their own, to their own demise and destruction they clung on to their unbelief. Father, we know that ultimately every person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, those whom you have chosen, those whom you have called, or when we hear your voice, it will be an ever sweet and familiar voice of our Father, our Creator, our Savior. So Lord, I pray that you would, that your Holy Spirit would cause our hearts to become humble and that we would, with our mouths and with our hearts, confess that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. May we take this faith and make, we make it evident through our confession and through our faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord, the Savior of all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.